Business class listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. This is episode number 201 and the first of 2022. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for my loyal listeners. Thank you to the new folks, the new listeners coming on board. And thank you for your patience. I do indeed thank you for your patience. I appreciate you all listening and tuning in. I would greatly appreciate if you were able to leave a rating or review. As a matter of fact, this would greatly help me out. Sorry for the begging, but the reality is these are most helpful. Spotify has a new way to rate podcasts, and I hope you will take the time if you're listening to this on Spotify to provide a rating of Wisco Weekly. You cannot provide a review, unfortunately, but on Apple, you can, Apple Podcasts. So would appreciate a rating or review of Wisco Weekly. You know, in these current times, my business class, this is very volatile times, at least in the market, as well as what is reverberating as a result of the market volatility. And a motto I have adopted and will continue to adopt for the foreseeable future because I think it will be most relevant is the motto of, if you can find stability, you will find predictability. If you can find stability, you can find predictability. And certainly now, there's not a whole lot of stability. And so it is my goal, it is of high interest on my end, to now provide to you guests and topics that relate to providing stability. That's why I'm very happy to provide guests like the first one I will be showcasing here today. His name is Mr. Alex Pollock. I just like to simply say he's a student of banking and finance. And with as him being a student, he just has a very great way to explain some of the booms and busts that have historically occurred in the U.S. economy and the global economy at large. And he provides a little bit of sense. And in my opinion, I thought a bit of stability into what the future U.S. economy and global economy holds. I will be showcasing more guests like this in the coming episodes as a way to continue to focus on providing stability in order to find predictability. So I hope you will tune in. I hope you will stay for a while. One of the other things that will be coming up here is for the next couple of weeks, I will start to highlight companies that are in my virtual fund, the dedicated lane fund. The dedicated lane fund, you'll find what stocks that I've put in there. And then these will be the companies I will be following for the remainder of the year and providing reports, providing some analysis, especially analysis based off of their earnings reports. And so I've done a lot of earnings reports already. I'll continue to do that. However, we're going to look at providing analysis on the companies that are specifically in the dedicated lane fund. I hope you enjoy this episode with Mr. Alex Pollock, Senior Fellow at the Mises Institute. 
Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitaita, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco. And my, what a tumultuous first month we are having in the market. I think it is 100% agreed that everyone that I've spoken to so far has had two years of the hard work of your money working hard for you, absolutely decimated, or at least they're back to zero from when this pandemic began. And there's it. There's no end in sight, at least at the moment. It's it's hard to see the forest through the trees right now, which is why I'm very excited and almost like, you know, unexpectedly calm and rational about what we're going to be doing moving forward. Why is that? Because I've had the chance to really look into my guest today. And he specializes in booms and busts, and how appropriate is that today, right? So, men and women, my guest is a student of financial systems. His work covers cycles of booms and busts, financial crises with their political responses, housing finance, government-sponsored enterprises, risk and uncertainty, central banking, banking and financial regulation, corporate governance, retirement finance, student loans, and the politics of finance. Are you, are, you, are you excited yet for this episode? My guest has worked in the Department of Treasury from 2019 to 2021. He's worked at the Federal Home, Home Loan Bank of Chicago from 1991 to 2004, and he was a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis in 1991. He's the author of Finance and Philosophy, Why We're Always Surprised, and Boom and Bust, this is his second book, Boom and Bust, Financial Cycles and Human Prosperity. Currently, he serves as a senior fellow with the Mises Institute. My guest is a graduate of Williams College, the University of Chicago, and Princeton University. Men and women, please welcome to the show, Mr. Alex Pollock. Hello, sir. And it's great to be with you. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's a, more of an honor on my answer to, to have you on to really give kind of this historical account and provide some perspective and wisdom to everyone else who has not seen as many booms and busts as you have. And yes, that is an age reference there, sir. <laughs> Very appropriate one. So where, where are you coming to me from right now? I am in Lake Forest, Illinois, at my home office here. And, and is that where you were born and raised? No, I was born in Detroit uh, and raised there in the city of Detroit. And then I've lived a good many places uh, since and, and worked, as you, were, uh, as you were summarizing, in various parts of banking and finance. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a, now a global market, as we know. And, uh, and so we want some uh, a broad view in space, but even more important, as you were suggesting, Dennis, is a broad view in time. Hmm. I made a list uh, some years ago, and it's longer now, of all of the financial crises that I had personally lived through. Oh, please state them. And uh, well, 
it's a long list. But let me say I was a trainee uh, in the International Banking Department of what used to be the Continental Illinois Bank, and I joined in 1969. My first day at work was one week after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. So we so uh, were home with our parents watching that, and then we drove to Chicago, and then I was in the bank. Well, that was 1969. My first financial crisis was in 1970. That was the collapse of the Penn Square. Uh, I'm sorry, the collapse of the Penn Central Railroad, which was a huge company, a very important one at the time. Uh, and that bankruptcy set off a panic in the commercial paper market. Um, and uh, it was a huge financial event in and of itself, the bankruptcy and the commercial paper market was bailed out by the Federal Reserve. So that was about a year after I began in the business and I had seen uh, many since. I'm uh, fond of pointing out, I, I think as you know from having looked at, at my writing, uh, that Charles Kindleberger, writing in the 1970s, observed that over a long span of history, he looked at four centuries up to the 1970s and, conclu and uh, concluded there's a financial crisis about once every 10 years. Uh, and he uh, put that into a very, what is now a classic book, which all of you should read if you haven't. Manias, Panics, and Crashes by Charles Kindleberger, uh, published in about 1978. Uh, well, how about his once every 10 years? Since then, we've had financial crises in the 1980s, in the 1990s, in the 2000s, in the 2010s, and now in... 2020. Which was, the, 2020. which was the crisis in the 90s? I, I know. So for me, so I guess let, let's let's set the stage for, for my context of U.S. economic history. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was born in 79. So I don't remember the savings and loans crisis, but I know that during my time being alive, that was definitely one of the big crises at the moment. In the 80s, right? In the 80s, late 80s. Now, after that, there was then the- Well, actually, the savings and loan industry was already insolvent on a mark-to-market -market basis in 1980. Mm. And crisis dragged on through the whole decade until its final giant bailout was about a $150 billion bailout in 1989. Uh, the government set up a kind of shell company to sell bonds to finance uh, the bailout. It sold bonds, which were 40-year bonds, which mean they're, they run until 2030. These were oh, called the bonds sold to finance the savings and loan crisis run until 2030. So for eight more years from right now, we're still paying interest on the bonds oh. sold for the crisis that culminated in 1989. Alex, we're supposed to, we're supposed to be hopeful here, okay? <laughs> we are hopeful. We're going to get the hopeful part. But well, that's the crisis. Now, you asked about the 1990s. Well, the 1990s began with a giant commercial real estate bust, which took down many banks and was it was a real crisis at the time. It went on to a Mexican debt crisis in 1994. There was a Mexican uh, a default in 1982, which set off the international sovereign debt crisis of the 1980s. But there was another Mexican crisis. In 1994, then there was a Russian crisis 
where the where the newly uh, newly non-communist Russia defaulted on its debts, took down uh, various people, and the the famous uh, uh, super leveraged hedge fund long-term capital management. If you remember this term, remember well, this was a, this was a, an investment fund. Uh, which claimed that they were hedged. It had a couple of Nobel Prize winning economists uh, among its partners, uh, and it crashed in the 1990s. And it was there was fear at the time it would take a lot of Wall Street with it in a hurry. The bailout was arranged in secret meetings. I believe they uh, they went in the back door of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, and when they arrived in their uh, in their cars and, and arranged a bailout. That was in the uh, 1990s. Then, of course, the 1990s, this was not a crisis, but the 1990s was also the famous dot-com stock market bubble. Yeah. Just experienced another bubble, as you were saying, over the last uh, couple of years since the, uh, since the panic of the crisis. Anyway, uh, and then the collapse uh, of that, uh, as, as that bubble collapsed, putting us into a recession, a couple of things happened. One, terrorists flew airplanes into the World Trade Center, 2001, making things worse. Uh, but also we were in a recession and the Federal Reserve under Alan Greenspan, later knighted by Queen Elizabeth for his services to central banking, decided that a way to help this, which would be to set off a housing boom which they did. Oh, yeah. Which became a housing bubble. Well, that took us to the crisis of the 2000s. Long answer to a short question. Well, you know, your your characterization of the dot-com bust followed by 2011 is almost emblematic a little bit of what may, trans, what may be transpiring today with the pandemic crisis. And now, all of a sudden, the concerns over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I well, mean, I, don't forget China's possible invasion of Taiwan. China's Same invasion time. of Taiwan. I mean, I, I think you know to to cite a letter from one of you know a, a a gentleman that I greatly admire, Jordan Peterson, when he submitted his resignation to the University of Toronto recently, he had mentioned how Putin had had kind of seen some of this stuff coming in the United States, this kind of this like disease that we're going through right now, not, not necessarily the COVID pandemic, but the culture war going on right now and how it's just making the United States sick and weak. And so when you are sick and weak and you your economy is on, you know, un unstable, there's no better time to, you know, invade these these countries. Well, that, that's a thought. <laughs> and, uh, and we've had, you know, I, I just finished, uh, I, I just finished the draft of, of my new book that's mm. going to come out uh, next summer, which I'm writing with a co-author, okay. Howard Adler, a, a marvelous colleague. Uh, Howard uh, was the chief of staff of, of the uh, Financial Stability Oversight Council in the Treasury when I was. Uh, Principal Deputy Director of the Office of Financial Research, and we worked very closely together. So having left the Treasury, not fitting into the new administration as, as, as we didn't and don't, <laughs> uh, we said, well, let's write a book together. So we're writing a book. Uh, are you are you allowed to spill the details of a little of, of, uh, well, of what? Well, I can okay. tell you what it's about. 
Okay. It's about the panic of 2020, the crisis, the, the severe crisis of 2020, the, the what was really a depression in 2020, set off by the pol- political reaction to the pandemic, um, a very short but a very sharp and, and serious depression. And then the massive interventions by central banks uh, and treasuries to finance the panic. And then the subsequent everything bubble, which you were referring to before, which we've all lived through from the from mid 2020 till, let's say, the end of 2021. Uh, and the fact, uh, as we say the uh, in the book, the most fundamental uh, axiom of economics is nothing is free. Right? People say there's no free lunch, but Remember, it's really nothing is free, that everything you do has a cost. And, and, the, uh, and the great bailout of the uh, pandemic crisis is having a cost that we're living through now. First, the, the very high inflation, which we can come back to if you want. And, uh, and now the, uh, the, the adjustments in, uh, in over bloated market prices. But look, here's the good news. We've talked about all these problems. And I talked about all, all the things that I have personally lived through and observed and sometimes worked on uh, directly. But in spite of all those things, the great economic growth that an enterprising free market economy creates, even if it's not totally free, just as long as it's mostly a free market and enterprise uh, is, is rewarded uh, and the rule of law is sustained, there is this most astonishing thing in economic history, which is the last 200 years, right right up to still now, uh, of amazing economic growth, making ordinary people, that is to say you and me, uh, and all of our all of our friends who are with us, ordinary people, so unimaginably better off than we would have been. Had we been our ancestors uh, out, out uh, plowing the field or waiting at the rice paddies uh, or, or uh, cutting wood and hauling stones. We, we lead a life which is so rich, uh, not only in economic goods, but in intellectual and cultural goods. It's amazing. And it's due to this miracle of long-term economic growth uh, created by the enterprising economy. That's the good news. Now, along the way, uh, well, I'm happy. Along you... the way, we uh-huh. have these cycles and these crises and and the busts that come with the boom. But on but on average, uh, and there's no reason to think this can't continue. Uh, and on average, we have this amazing growth. I'm happy to bring a bit of, uh, of brightness to um, to this conversation, some levity to the conversation, because I do share your sentiment when it comes to the hopefulness of the entrepreneurial economic engine of the U.S. economy for all of its failures and for all of its successes, for all of its flaws, for all of its greatness. I think I've been humbled over the last couple of weeks and not just because of the money lost, but also as I'm trying to put things in perspective, you know, I've, I've really been, I, I, I took a dive deep, Alex, about 10 years ago into the U S economy. And this is where 
you know, it, it started with Ron Paul and, uh, you know, his view of libertarian and then which kind of led down the path of Austrian uh, economics and then the Mises Institute and many other, you know, conservative libertarian think tanks. I, I've read, you know, um, I mean, as a matter of fact, I have the book right here. You know, I've I to, to try to be balanced. I've, I've read Keynes. Um, you know what, Hayek? I just reread recently. What Hayek has a wonderful essay on John Maynard Keynes. Oh yeah, he says how brilliant he was, and how articulate he was, and how convincing he was. He's also kind of an intellectual bully and very arrogant. And then Hayek says, of course, he really didn't understand economics. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> obviously that that's going to be said, right? Especially coming from the classical school of economics. <laughs> But but you know this this kind of um, the, the, this brighter future that that I agree that we are that we will have does make me then kind of put in perspective some of the things that John Maynard Keynes and now this kind of whole concept of modern monetary theory that is being circulated it kind of puts a little bit more in perspective and so let me let me premise this by saying. After this discussion that we have, and I want to now get into more of the, uh, you know, the the substantive aspects of our conversation. After this conversation, Alex, I will be making a judgment call on my final thoughts, essentially, for modern monetary theory. Whereas I could tell you the shorthanded version right now, I, it, I'm not in favor of it. It's not a favorable concept. I subscribe more to classical economics. But to remain as a, you know, kind of a scientist in all of this, I'm constantly questioning my hypothesis of, well, why is modern monetary theory bad? Okay, so that's that's what I want to just premise the rest of this conversation with. Let, let's get into a little bit more of, you know, maybe we'll get back to talking about you because I think that we, we've had a good understanding of, of who you are. Let, let's get more to some of the substantive stuff, and then we'll go back and we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the historical perspectives you have um, with the U.S. economy and the Federal Reserve. So, Alex, I came across you initially because you penned an article in the Mises Institute uh, on Mises.org, and business class listeners, I will add links on the episode page. You penned an article entitled, The Federal Reserve Keeps Buying Mortgages. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I want to read for you um, a passage uh, that you have in here. You said today's Federal Reserve, today's Federal Reserve assets are 10 times what they were in November 2006, 15 years ago when they were $861 billion and none were mortgages. The Federal Reserve now owns on its balance sheet $2.6 trillion. In mortgages that means about 24% of all outstanding residential mortgages in this whole big country reside in the central bank which has thereby earned the remarkable status of becoming by far the largest savings and loan institution in the world this 2.6 trillion dollars in mortgages is 48% more than the Federal Reserve's 1.76 trillion of five years ago, and of course, infinitely greater than the zero of 2006. So that was from your most recent article uh, on the Mises Institute. Back in 2018. Thank you for reading that. 
And that particular section that you just quoted, I had a lot of fun writing. It was shocking. (laughs) It was shocking. It was jaw-dropping shocking when I read that. Okay. All right. So let's put that in context here. So again, you wrote that passage in this most recent article a couple weeks ago in 2022. In 2018, you gave a hearing. You provided a hearing to Congress that was entitled A Further Examination of Federal Reserve Proposals. Yeah, and excuse me, it wasn't, I, it wasn't my hearing. I, I was a, I testified as a witness. Cor- their yes, hearing, of course. Yes, yes, correct. When you testify to Congress, it's very clear that it's their hearing, not your hearing. Well, the, uh, yes. the, they'll be glad to know you know your role. <laughs> so uh, in that hearing, uh, I'll, I'll, you had you said something there, and I'm quoting from it. The original Federal Reserve Act of 1913 tried to balance regional and central power. Hence the name Federal Reserve System, as opposed to a single bank of the United States. Carter Glass, one of the legislative fathers of the 1913 Act, it is said, like to ask witnesses in subsequent congressional hearings, does the United States have a central bank? The answer he wanted was, no, it has a federal system of reserve banks. Do we have a federal system of reserve banks? Or do we have a central banking system since the Federal Reserve is the largest holder of mortgage-backed securities? That's a great question, and the answer is quite clear. No, we do not have a federal system of reserve banks. That's what Carter Glass thought he had led in the creation of. But what we, in fact, have is a single consolidated centralized central bank. And, of course, the Federal Reserve speaks of itself always now as a central bank. And if you just think about this grammatically, uh, we say the Federal Reserve is. We don't say the Federal Reserve banks are. Hmm. By the way, just as you know, the time of the founding of the United States, they used to say the United States are. Hmm. Now we say the United States is. So the Federal Reserve is. And uh, what happened was in the in the course of history, Uh, In the crisis of the 1930s, uh, they redid the Federal Reserve Act in 1935, it was the Banking Act of 1935, in order to centralize power in the Federal Reserve in Washington. And this was a, uh, as I understand it, this was a deal uh, that Mariner Eccles, who was the new chairman then of the Federal Reserve, Mariner Eccles took the job upon getting Roosevelt to agree that they could redo the structure to centralize power in the Federal Reserve Board. So what we really have now is a single system that runs as one thing, even though it's got 12 banks as part of it. And uh, formally, each of those 12 banks is a separate corporation. Each Federal Reserve Bank has its own board of directors, its own officers, its own financial statements. Nobody ever looks at them except maybe me and the, and the president of the respective uh, Federal Reserve Banks. Um, but it actually operates as one consolidated, centralized central bank. So just the opposite of what Carter Glass, who was a Jeffersonian uh, 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 political thinker, Uh, just the opposite of what he wanted, but exactly what 
Mariner Eccles wanted. Mariner Eccles was from Salt Lake City. His family had uh, had, uh, had uh, emigrated from Scotland, where they were impoverished, to a new life in Salt Lake City. He became uh, they became very wealthy. He owned banks and industrial companies. Uh, and was a very uh, interesting character and came down and, and uh, took over the Fed in, in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the depression and stayed as uh, as chairman until uh, I think about 1948 at which time he was feuding with President Truman because of car- because of Mariner Eccles wanted to uh, control inflation in those days and stop buying long-term government bonds, hmm. which the president wanted him to keep buying. Right. So here we are, history repeats today. Right, the Reserve right. is still buying long-term government bonds over again. Well, there's a the whole history of the Federal Reserve, both as a matter of uh, institutional history and political history, since it is a very, of course, it's a very political organization embedded in national politics, as well as economics, uh, but also theoretically, as the different theoretical ideas uh, governing central banking uh, come and go over time, it makes a very interesting study. So uh, just coming around to the short answer, no, this is not a federal system. Yes, it is a now a unified central bank, in fact, and so, it's exactly how they think of themselves. So then it, it, through your insight and wisdom what would change now if we were to operate as a federal system of reserve banks as opposed to a central bank well it's not going to happen so i don't know that it's uh... no i i know it's not going to happen but i but conjecture right like yeah well the idea was originally there were 12 uh, federal reserve banks uh the, at the time of the Federal Reserve Act, they had a great debate about how many Federal Reserve banks there should be. Uh, some people thought there should be one, that there should be a central bank, like, like the Bank of England, uh, which was, of course, the Bank of England in those days was the leading mm-hmm. bank in the world, the leading central bank, the model for all central banking. Uh, and um, so some people thought you should have something like that. Others thought it should be much more uh, broken up like one per state or something like that. They compromised on 12. Uh, there's a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, that uh, that the 12 argument won out because somebody argued you had to have enough uh, Federal Reserve Bank so that a banker who is wanting to take uh, notes to his Federal Reserve Bank so he could borrow from the Federal Reserve Bank could get there by train in one day, this is 1913 now. Okay. The idea, so the idea was, if you were this little bank, you could, and you were in trouble, and you needed to borrow from the Fed, and you were going to do that by securing your loan with various assets of yours. You could put those papers in your suitcase. You could get on the train, and you could make it in one day to the Federal Reserve Bank if they were 12. Wow. I can't vouch for the truth of that, but that's a story that's that's told. Uh, and so the idea was that there were there were 12 banks, they could be different, and they could have, for example, a different discount rate, because hmm. the country was then was then in fact, a regional a set of regional economies. 
not so much an integrated national economy. And originally it had different Federal Reserve banks, at least in theory, and sometimes it was the fact would have different interest rates that they were setting for their own lending. And of course, they, they could be different uh, uh, in other ways um, uh, and dispute with each other as, as banks. But that's uh, that doesn't fit a, a unified national economy, let alone we don't really have a national economy. We have an economy intertwined with the entire world. There is no the economy. There is this amazingly complex set of, of uh, economic and production and investment and financing uh, transactions, and they run all over all yeah. the world. Imagine, imagine the, those bankers of before, if uh, the criteria to set up a, a Federal Reserve system of banks you know, ha had to be such that you could take a train to the closest Federal Reserve oh, system, that's whereas that's now you could just <laughs> Venmo or PayPal someone like they would just be blown right. away. OK, but a, remember the speed of, of okay. transfer of money. That's true. But I want you to remember, as you look back that way, that maybe the most important or certainly one of the most important innovations of all time economically was the railroad. Sure. Just to be able yeah. to get there on the train was a different universe from having to get on your horse and ride there. Yeah, right, right. Think about that. Right. <laughs> so now now if I understand this too, you know, I had the chance to watch the Leo Brainerd hearing most recently or a few weeks ago. And so the Federal Reserve at this moment really is in cahoots with the big four banks. And it's really the combination of the Federal Reserve and the big four banks that are kind of setting, you know, the economic tone for our economy. Is, is, that, is, is that the way that this operates? Is that the way this world works then? I wouldn't say so. Of course, the biggest banks and the, and the, um, uh, and the Wall Street firms have always been close. Uh, to the Federal Reserve since its founding. And, and the, in the beginning of the Federal Reserve System, the most powerful part of the Federal Reserve System was not the board in Washington. It was the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Because New York, during the First World War, was beginning its takeover uh, as, as the leading financial center in the world from London. And the Federal Reserve was slowly becoming, it hadn't become that yet, but it was on the way to becoming the leading central bank in the world, taking that away from the Bank of England. And the US dollar was on the way to becoming the, the global currency, which it was not before. The global currency before was the pound sterling, the British pound. And the whole international financial, financial world ran on pounds, not dollars. So anyway. anyway uh, so just real quick, so just, just I'm sorry. So where, <laughs> remind me where we were. Well, 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 just real quick then. So, so this again, this is a good historical perspective. So you're saying it wasn't until the 1940s that the U.S. dollar started to become the world's 1920s. Uh, I will say 1920s. 19, 19, yeah, sorry, 1920s. That the that the U.S. dollar became the world's reserve currency. Yeah, growing out of the First World War, because all the European countries, including England, bankrupted themselves fighting the war. The single most important 
type of event for finance. The most important um, is, a, is a big war. Big wars create all kinds of financial results. Well, when, when the European countries made the incredible mistake to commit suicide uh, in 1914, they all went broke. They all went broke fighting World War I. And this gave the United States the chance uh, to emerge. Uh, among other things, the United States lent uh, money to England and France in particular, but other countries as well, to fight the First World War. So they all became deeply in hoc uh, to the United States at that time. Hmm. And they couldn't pay when they wore out over, they couldn't pay. Well, why not? Well, look at, you know, debt, uh, uh, debt can go for different things. You can have debt in the classical sense, uh, which finances productive capacity. Okay. And results in making things that have value and the cash flow from those things pays off the debt. Well, that's the classic use of debt. And this is this would be more akin to like business debt. Yeah. Well, it could also be a government. You know, it could be a municipality uh, okay. building a water treatment uh, okay. center, which is infrastructure be kind of debt. Okay. Yeah. But but the whole point is the debt is creating something which produces things of value, and the things of value then pay off the debt. All right. That's classic. A second kind of debt, which is much more dangerous, is debt to finance consumption, like running up your charge card to take a vacation. Well, that vacation doesn't produce any money, so you're going to have to find the money someplace else to pay off the debt that's used for consumption. A third and most dangerous kind of, of, of debt is debt for destruction, that is to say debt to fight a war. And, and big wars produce the most debt, and well, what is the debt gone to? The debt has gone to blowing up each other. Uh, and so when you get done, there's, there's nothing there. And that's what happened in the First World War. And uh, all, of, all of these countries were indebted to the United States. They well, were indebted could... with bonds that required them to pay in gold coin. <laughs> well, they'd all inflated their currency. They'd all depreciated their currencies by rapid inflation. Hmm. They didn't have the gold and they couldn't pay. And, and one of the major financial issues of the whole 1920s internationally was what are we going to do about all this debt that England can't pay, that France can't pay, that Germany is supposed to pay reparations, but Germany can't pay the reparations. And in the end, what happened was they all defaulted in the 1930s. Part of the crisis of the 1930s was all, all of this debt ended in default. So wars are the big thing, and among the things the First World War did, did was make it possible for the U.S. to emerge as the dominant financial power, the Federal Reserve, ultimately, not till later, but ultimately as the dominant central bank and the dollar as the dominant global currency, as well as the currency of the United States. Now, the Second World War was obviously also devastating. The Vietnam War set off the, the horrible inflation of the 1970s. When did you tell me you were born? 79. 79. 79. Okay, well, inflation was in double digits in 1979. People were in despair. Uh, they discovered that you could have recession and inflation at the same time, which was against the Keynesian theory of the time, one of the proofs that it was wrong. And, uh, and that was 
to an important extent, result, resulted from financing the Vietnam War by printing money. Well, what do we have now? We have financing a war against the coronavirus by printing money. Uh, and that brings us to MMT. You, you said you were looking for your final statement on MMT, and mine is already formed. It's MMTRIP. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So uh, b- before we get b- b- before I comment on that, I, I want to get to kind of this next part then, because this right. kind of dives right into MMT here. So okay. let, let's go into another hearing you provided. Uh, or you spoke at in 2007 now, okay? This was a hearing you spoke in 2007, and uh, part of your hearing, you said, quote, the fundamental principle is that long-term growth and the greatest economic well-being for ordinary people can only be created by market innovation and experimentation. This is kind of what you're talking about, good debt, good debt that is, that is uh, you know, leading to productivity. Uh, going back to your quote here, markets for goods and services must be accompanied by markets in financial instruments, which by definition place a current price on future, thus inherently uncertain events. This much is obvious, but easy to forget when addressing the results of a bust with the benefit of hindsight, when it seems like you would have to be stupid to make the mistakes that smart people actually made. The classic patterns of booms based on credit overexpansions and their following busts are colorfully discussed by such students of financial cycles such as Charles Kindle, Kindleberger, Walter, I don't know how to pronounce Badgett. it last, Badgett, and Hyman Minsky. Kindleberger, surveying several centuries of financial history, observed that financial crises and scandals occur on average about once every 10 years. This matches my own experience, that is your experience. Every bust is followed by reforms, but the next bust arrives nonetheless. Still the trend of market innovation and long-term growth continues. So this is kind of recapping some of the things that we've already been discussing here, Alex. However, if booms and busts are occurring once every 10 years and these cycles are contributing to federal debt and which we can then even you know, add a little bit more color to this federal debt in that it's not just about production anymore, but it is about consumption. It is about the debt to of destruction, right? So we so we go through these cycles of contributing to more federal debt, and we've been carrying a federal debt since the Great Depression. Isn't this what is described as modern monetary theory? No, I don't think so. I think modern monetary theory is a theory that you handle the debt by printing up however much money you need. We say printing. Printing is a metaphor. Well, it's partially true. That is to say, they actually it do. It was before you know. true. No, it is still true. You know, do you know how many dollar bills there are in the world? Two trillion dollars. Well, I've always heard that that number is, has always been shady because you know, prior to, I think it was like 1960, there was no record keeping of the amount of dollars that were printed. That could be, but at least on the Federal Reserve's books. Okay. It's show currency in circulation. And you said it's two trillion? Two trillion. So here they are. There's one. You know what this is? This is a perpetual non-interest bearing uh, obligation. (laughs) 
Hmm. It can't be redeemed for anything. It never pays you interest, but we use them anyway. So that's so we actually do print these. Yes, that's right. two trillion. The rest of them, of course, are just accounting entries. Yep. Um, on on the books of the Federal Reserve. Now Carter Glass and the other founders of the Federal Reserve thought that that uh, the Federal Reserve should always be able to redeem those these in gold coins. That is to say, what a real gold standard means right. is that you go to your bank and you give them what, some of these and they give you gold coins from, from the bank. Of course, that's no longer the case, as we know. Now, that's another whole. I don't know if you did you read the chapter in, um, in Finance and Philosophy on the, on the, on the uh, expropriation of gold by the United States government in the 1930s? If not, I recommend it. It's a whole fascinating story all on itself. Okay. No, I, ha I have well, not read that. Okay. So partly we actually do print it literally, and partly we print it metaphorically yes. just by writing on the books of the Federal Reserve a credit that says, you now have a claim on the Federal Reserve for $1 million or whatever it is. Oh, how beautiful. That. <laughs> it's a kind of magic, isn't it? So I, I like to tell this story. I wrote a little article maybe six months ago called the Biden inflation made simple. Okay. Which you might enjoy if you haven't looked at it. Okay. Biden inflation made simple essay starts off by saying this. There's a very old joke that says, what's the difference between banking and politics? And the answer is banking is borrowing money from the public and lending it to your friends. Okay. And politics is taking money from the public and giving it to your friends. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, Jesus. There's a lot of truth in this. Oh, there's a lot of truth. I mean, I laugh both in, in humor and I'm crying inside. Okay, now the Biden inflation is based on a variation on this. The Biden inflation is borrowing money from the Federal Reserve and giving it to your friends. All right, so when the, um, when the Federal Reserve buys Treasury, bonds, which it now has $5 trillion of them, or it buys mortgage-backed securities, which are ultimately guaranteed by the U.S. government, first through Fannie and Freddie, then through them to the U.S. Treasury. Um, it's mostly just writing entries in its book. Right. It's doing, it's doing printing, metaphorical printing. Well, that's pretty good. You know, that's the oldest, I, I always say, modern monetary theory is not written right. It should be written, quote, modern, unquote, monetary theory. Because the oldest monetary idea there is is just print it up. And that's what's being done. Well, so now, wait a minute. Now, nothing is free. And this is, this is the, the key point about modern monetary theory. Can you do it? Sure, you can do it. Can you run up the Federal Reserve's balance sheet? Sure, much bigger than anybody thought possible. In a, in a day when there is, when, when the dollar bills can't be redeemed for anything, interestingly, they're called notes. Mm -hmm. But a note is a promise to pay something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These things are not a promise to pay anything. Anyway, you can run them up. But they're not. it's not free. So among other things, you're going to get high inflation. So it was clear a year ago that what we were heading for was a, it was a high inflation. We didn't know how high. It turns out it's very high. Uh, and inflation has, is very 
costly in terms of uh, robbing savings, uh, robbing the wage earners of the purchasing power of their wages in upsetting finances and markets. Now, ultimately then, uh, the central bank, which has been doing this pretty good, wait a minute, I can't, I can't have this destructive inflation. So I have to start uh, letting interest rates go up. I have to stop printing so much. And when they do that, interest rates rise, present values of all assets fall, financial markets start behaving the way you started off talking about over the last three weeks, or let's say over the new year, 2022. Mm -hmm. So uh, MMTRIP. I mean, I do hope MMTRIP. However, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more and more that this whole concept of MMT is it it's like we've just we, we've just touched a little bit of what is the potential of MMT and potential I'm neutrally you know I'm saying this in a kind of a neutral way why is that well look I don't like the fact that we have this huge federal debt and and especially given the fact that now the federal reserve is the largest holder of mortgage backed securities i mean that you know this only this this only can lead to the fact that housing will now be a government program i, I just i don't know any other logical way to to you know to get to that end it is already and we've had a tremendous inflation in house prices correct well and and that so that's going to make it difficult now however we talked about, again, the ingenuity of our economy. We've talked about how there's just, you know, this kind of uh, American exceptionalism, capitalism that we always find a way. And so one of the things that has arisen over the last 10 years is this idea of the sharing economy, the Ubers, the Airbnbs. And that has unlocked another economic engine, that being of, I don't know, you want independent contractors. Okay. You also have influencers, social media influencers who are the new advertisers of the corporate world that unlocked in a whole nother economic economy there. Right. If this is the case where we constantly take on new debt. And even though I, you know, for the last few years, I'm thinking, God, we have such a huge debt, huge debt. Now I'm starting to think we could probably take on a hundred times more the kind of debt that we have now. And still we have a type of entrepreneurial spirit here in the United States that will always find a way to make money, even though we are mortgaging our future. But it's like, who cares? Well, you care if you, if it turns into a high inflation that destroys your savings, uh, crashes markets but wasn't this the case though also of the after world war ii there was you know one stat i was looking at was the fact that uh debt to gdp was over 100 percent, like 120 percent, and we're at those levels right now and what happened that what happened after world war ii first of all there was a huge inflation in the right. late 40s then continuing inflation although at a low level so let's say you've got the debt and you're the government and you can't pay Let's say, which is the case now for the United States. But it's also the case for a lot of people. If you said pay off your debt today, you, you couldn't do it. Right. You've got to pay it off over time. But, but let's say you can't, you don't have enough cash coming in in any way 
to pay it off over time for a government that's taxes. Uh, what can you do? Well, uh, there are three uh, classic things you can do. One is you can default. You just say, well, you know what? I can't pay. Now, if you're a person, that means you're, you're in the bankruptcy court. Now, you're going to settle your debt and your, and your creditors are going to take losses. If you're Puerto Rico, you went into an equivalent of bankruptcy. Now, if you were the city of Detroit, and in all these cases, the people who lent you money are going to take big losses. Um, and then after the fact, people say, well, how could, coming back to the thing you read of mine, well, how could anybody have been so stupid? Yeah, right. <laughs> they look really stupid in retrospect right. to have lent Detroit or Puerto Rico money. But it's, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So one thing you can do is default and not just not pay. Uh, a, a second thing you can do is get someone else to bail you out. Somebody else to get you, give you money so you can pay. Let's say that's not available. What's the third? Oh, by the way, default. Sovereign debt, which is sometimes referred to as risk-free, since 1800 and right up to now, there have been more than 250 defaults on sovereign debt in the world. Okay, so in the world, than, yeah. I, I thought you were going to. I thought that was just the United States. I'm like that. No, no, no in the world. Right. Okay, in the okay. World. But there have been defaults by the United. I count four defaults by the United States historically, which is another story. Okay, but. but but about on average, one sovereign, one default by a sovereign per year over two centuries, right wow. up, continuing till now. So you can so sovereigns do default. Um, but there's something else you can do. You can have inflation. So inflation is very helpful when you when the government gets its debt so high, it can't pay, and it's, it has no prospect of paying, uh, and no one else is going to bail it out. You know. If, then what you what do you do? Well, you inflate, and inflation is an implicit default, and you just let the the, the holders of your debt get paid back in ever uh, in in currency that's worth less all the time, and then in term in nominal terms you can you can pay back the currency. Now look at that doesn't work if you're on a gold standard, which is why governments don't want to be on the gold standard because it really locks you into your debt. Then you're up into a default instead. So uh, where the vast uh, uh, increase in debt, which is, not, which is not going to cash generating productive investments, but into consumption or into war or into waste or, or anything else, takes you is implicit default by inflation. And that's what's happening now all over the world. I mean, the, the check on this, though. But, but doesn't mean, as you say, the good news is underneath all this, as long as it doesn't get too out of control, as long as you maintain a rule of law, as long as contracts are enforced, as long as uh, uh, science can keep inventing things that technologists can innovate with, that entrepreneurs can create new things with, this this magic of the growth can continue, but along the way you're going to have ups and downs. So what does it look like? the The long term is is an upward sloping line like this. We know the slope, by the way. It's two percent a year, real growth on average. Okay, but the actual path is a cycle 
around that line. We always go too far up. We always come down and go too far down and recover. So what you're feeling is a cycle that's on a long-term trend. So the long-term trend is the good news, but the downs of the cycle are, are the bad news. And there doesn't seem to be any way uh, that you can avoid uh, these cycles from happening. People keep trying to figure out how to do it, but uh, so far no one has. But has that's ex- that's that's kind of exactly my point. These cycles are will ever be occurring, and we will go through these booms and busts. When we go through the busts, you know, it, it was kind of interesting to hear your perspective on the savings and loans crisis, how that started early in the eighties, and it was only until the late eighties till it was completed. I think about the financial crisis of 2008 and how it took, what was it, almost three years to pass TARP. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, TARP was 2008. Yeah, TARP was 2008. It took about three years to do that. Okay. We get to this uh, CARES Act of 2020. That took three months. So we're talking savings and loans crisis, 10 years to pass something or to resolve that issue. Well, wait a minute now. The Congress passed during the savings and loans crisis uh, two other major pieces of legislation during the 1980s, which they claimed solved the problem. But it didn't. But yeah, but it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) They were passing passing things (laughs) while they were going. Uh, You know, the problem always is we really have to have this, this Hayek would say, try to avoid the pretense of knowledge. The fact is you don't know how these things are going to work out and we have to have some uh, some humility because the smartest of people will do things which later on will look stupid. Uh, this is, this the is the- The future th- is inherently unknowable. This is the theory of imperfect competition. No, it's the theory of the nature of the future financial and economic future. Mm. Economic reality and its accompanying financial reality is a different, I'm now I'm going to be a little philosophical. I don't think you mentioned, I, I have two degrees in philosophy among, among my youthful studies. Okay. Right, here's a little, here's a little, uh, one might say in my misspent youth. Um, maybe I misspent my old age too, now that I think about it. But anyway, the, uh, uh, Economic and financial reality is a different kind of reality. It's fundamentally different from physical reality. It it is not subject to laws that can be stated mathematically. It's fundamentally different from mathematical reality. And it's fundamentally different from biological reality, which is subject to, to determinative systems of things working. It's its own weird, fascinating, if at least for, for people like you and me, it's fascinating, yeah. kind of reality. And among its characteristics is that the future is not only unknown, it is unknowable, no matter how smart you are. And actually, some of the smartest people make the biggest mistakes because they can fit, they convince themselves they know yeah, right. What's going on, and, and they don't, as you know, Hayek gave that wonderful. That well, ec- economics um, is really knowledge. E- economics is really an academic discipline, as opposed to, like you said, some sort of like you know hard science. It is definitely not that. Yeah. The Nobel Prize, you know, the Nobel Prize in economics is is uh, uh, is the 
is called the Swedish uh, Reichsbank Prize in Economic Science. Sadly misnamed, it's not a science, and it can't. If you Correct. believe me, anyway. It can't be a science. Well, again, it, it's a discipline because it does combine math. It combines sociology. It combines psychology. Psychology. Yeah. So it's it's definitely a All discipline. Uh, well, and spot, philosophy, if done well. And philosophy, too. And political science, right? Uh, and political science, yeah. Uh, so I have actually, I do have one more question and a few more, but how much time do I have left with you? Let's say about five more minutes. Can we fit it in? Okay, so let me let, let me ask. Oh, it's a huge fun. Thank you very much. Oh, I it, it's a huge fun for me. We're going to have to uh, do part two uh, on this uh, sometime later this year. Hopefully, you know, hopefully then we can kind of look back and we can have fun and criticize everything that's been going on, but yet also look towards the spirit of the future. Okay, so one one question I do love to ask all my guests, and this is the idea of decision making. I'm fascinated by people's ability to make decision and everyone has their own way. It's almost like the way you describe markets, like, you know, it's a general slope up. Everyone has a decision-making process that's fairly similar, but through these kinds of waves, booms and busts, everyone does a little bit differently. So on your end, I would love for you to describe for me the art and science of making financial or investment decisions. Well, you want to have as much science as you can, but when you've done that, there'll be a lot of art uh, and judgment and balancing uh, upsides and downsides. Uh, you would like to take advantage of opportunities, but you'd also like to avoid disasters. Well, you would like to make profits, but you would also like to not go broke. Uh, because once you go broke, then the game is the game is over. You're not around for the well. Personally, of course, you can go broke and come back, as many people have. But you, you go broke, and, and that particular game is over. So, uh, in terms of personal finances, let me give you a few thoughts. First of all, the most fundamental is throughout your whole life, spend less than you make. Very simple. However much you make spend less than that. And if you're doing that, you will be by definition generating savings, always. And I think you should always be generating savings. And then of those savings, uh, in the beginning, there is some point you can't afford to lose them. So the things you can't, you can't afford to lose, looking at the inevitable ups and downs of life and markets in the world, you want to have some very conservative cushion just set aside. Then on top of that, um, you may from time to time need debt, like most people will engage in debt to buy a house at some point in their life. About 65% uh, of, of American households own their own house, and it's a, it's a very satisfying thing to do. Um, but think about the debt let's say on the house, all debt, but especially debt on a house is something that to be paid off. Something you're going to pay off so that as you get, let's say into your 60s, you have an asset which is unencumbered and it's really yours uh, forever uh, if you want it. And in general, be wary of debt. Now, we all know that if you lever up in the boom, your profits can be bigger. And when the boom turns to bust, then you can be wiped out. 
if you've uh, levered it over optimistically. So I'd be wary of debt. Personally, I'm a, I'm a, I think uh, it's very, uh, very satisfying to run your life with no debt. Um, Can I ask a follow-up question to this? Yeah, I've got two more points. Okay, so you just, can ask me any question you want. Okay, good. Then with money that you can't afford to use, then you make make investments that are you know, well diversified and, and and sensible. And then with money that you can really afford to lose, if you like, you can speculate. But be prepared. Be prepared to lose it if you if you're really speculating, uh, not investing. So that's a concern. All of that you will you will have read conservative approach, which I think is right. Well, so I want to go back to um, your um, the 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 debt that you were mentioning of, especially with regards to a house and how you should pay it off, and therefore it could be kind of this nice almost like bank for you later on down the road. How do you think about then at a proper ratio of debt to savings, debt to income of, you know, when you should have the house paid off kind of thing? Of course, I'm sure the answer is the sooner the better. But again, any like additional insights on, well, by the time you're 50, if you're making less than 150000 you better make sure your house is also under whatever it is, $200,000 of debt. I don't have any such uh, specific formulas, but always have some savings. Don't don't. If you don't have savings, then you'll be a forced seller when the hard times come, and you don't want to be a forced seller where you have to raise money by selling things when they're down, and particularly mm -hmm. to sell your house, especially if selling it means being foreclosed on. Mm -hmm. So uh, always have savings to get through the lean time so you won't be a forced seller uh, in, in always. Uh, and in terms of, of the house, I would think you should shoot. But most people think about buying a house, let's say, in their early 30s or so. By the time you're married, you're maybe having children. It's time uh, to have a place of your own. It's also we have deep, you know, we have deep biological needs for territoriality, which now satisfies. Uh, anyway, shoot for 30 years from then to have it paid off. That's to say, enter into your mid 60s or so. Uh, owning owning it something free and free and clear for the years to come. So I'd like to just show you one thing. I would love your comment on it. And, this, and then this I got to go. And then you got to go. So you talked about, I think, something that is common within classical economics, this idea of save, invest, and be entrepreneurial, correct? Yeah. So I want to show you something here that I've come up with, and it's called, I call it the avocado decision tree. And actually, I've been working on this for a couple months now. <laughs> but it's, it's, it goes like this. The avocado decision tree is a pattern for making good financial yeah. decisions and hence yeah. life decisions right so you have this you know what looks like an avocado you save you invest and you become entrepreneurial yeah. you have all these multiple decisions which you kind of always want to have in the context saving investing entrepreneurial yeah. and as you do that then you get to the other side of the equation if i could find it here which is this side which is kind of the opposite and that is over time 
your money increases as you follow this method of save, invest, be entrepreneurial, and as you make good decisions. Any comment? I think it looks pretty good. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> you know, this is the first time we're meeting. And I like the fact that, boom, we're, we're, we're right on the same wavelength. I like that. <laughs> well, Mr. Pollock, I will put uh, links how to follow you. Uh, your articles uh, and whatnot. I thank you kindly for your insight. I hope we can do this again as we probably have a lot to discuss. Um, are you traveling anywhere in the over the course of the next year or so that uh, we may be in the same city? Well, I'll certainly be at the Mises Institute big uh, annual meeting in March. Okay. In, uh, in Auburn, Alabama, if you would happen to be there. I'll, I'll be giving one of the keynote spe speeches down there. I'm going to look I into do, that, actually. If you would be there, I would look forward to meeting you in person, in addition to on Zoom, which has okay. been uh, extremely enjoyable. And thank you for your very intelligent and, uh, and enjoyable line of questions and discussion. I appreciate that, sir. Thank you. And again, thank you for, thank you for your work, first off. I guess that's the most important thing. Thank you for your work that you've been doing. And I thank you for, for sharing your wisdom and insight with me. And hopefully we can continue to have the motto of MMT RIP. <laughs> Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Whisker Weekly as we end every episode. Cheers. Prostlheim keepis nastravi salu kampai mabruk tutsings gambe yamas nastrovie vo salute en saudi to the customer experience. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is part of the podcast channel, Not Your Father's Economy, exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Economy, where you can receive bonus episodes, ad-free episodes that are intended to give you actionable insight to help you professionally and personally. Become a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Podcast for just $8.49 a month or $94 for the year, and you can cancel anytime. Also, please consider giving Wisco Weekly a rating and review. It's much appreciated. Thanks for tuning in.